This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. If there's one thing that Americans can agree on, regardless of political or cultural divides, it's that firefighters are heroes, first responders who risk their lives daily to keep our communities and property safe. We feel an extra debt of gratitude to firefighters who do the job without even being paid. Just take it from Lisa in New York State. I had a fire in my fields accidentally started by a person And we called the local fire department, and 12 volunteers showed up, and they saved my buildings. So I'm so grateful to the volunteers. Thanks for your message, Lisa. Firefighters not only prevent and extinguish fires, they also handle medical emergencies and rescue people and property during natural disasters. And believe it or not, most of them do the job for no pay in the United States. Those 677,000 unpaid members of their communities serve as the first line of defense, especially in small towns and rural areas. But as the number of emergency calls has risen steadily over the last 40 years, the number of volunteers who can respond to those calls has fallen, according to the National Volunteer Fire Council. The Volunteer Fire Service is facing a raft of challenges. Volunteerism is down, and the demands on fire and emergency personnel are up. At the same time, climate change emergencies are becoming more frequent and more dangerous, especially for first responders. So what's the future of volunteer firefighting in the face of these challenges? And how does pay complicate the equation? After the break, we'll hear from volunteer firefighters and learn what it takes to do the job. I'm Indira Lakshmanan, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more after this short break. Jasmine Morris here from the StoryCorps podcast. Our latest season is called My Way. Stories of people who found a rhythm all their own and marched to it throughout their lives. Consequences and other people's opinions be damned. You won't believe the courage and audacity in these stories. Hear them on the StoryCorps podcast from NPR. Let's get into the conversation and introduce our guests today. Joining us now are Mike Cole. He's a freelance writer and volunteer fire responder based in New York's Hudson Valley. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is Tony Kelleher. He's Deputy Fire Chief of Training at Washington, D.C.'s Fire and EMS Department and former Fire Chief of Kentland Volunteer Fire Department in Landover, Maryland. Tony, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Finally, Paul Acosta. He's the second vice chair of the National Volunteer Fire Council, as well as a storm chaser and volunteer firefighter in Brush, Colorado. Paul, great to have you. Thank you for having me as well. So, Mike, let's start with you. What motivated you to volunteer as a firefighter? Well, I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, and, and I, Buddhism isn't really a religion, but my approach to firefighting is religious. We live in the age of social media, and I, I jokingly call it um, the age of egomania. And the real term that defines it is personal brand, right? You know, we, people are, are commodities or products, and we don't do anything. I mean, not even having dinner 
without putting it on Instagram with our, our face and name um, uh, attached to it. You know, selfie, selfie, selfie. I always joke with my friends that the only thing people mean whenever they say anything on social media is look at me. And, uh, you know, as a Buddhist, I, I took the bodhisattva vow, which is where you liberate yourself from your own ego by um, trying to help other people liberate themselves from theirs. So it's sort of like a, a selfish motive by focusing on other people. And what do we do in the fire service? We, we put on a mask and we erase ourselves, right? We, we make ourselves invisible. We become our squads or our departments and we go into the IDLH, which is the the area of danger and, and we risk our bodies. And look, I, I certainly would not, and I understand it sounds very dramatic and I wouldn't assign that motivation to anyone else, but for me, and for me only, it really is the path to what um, we Buddhists call moksha, which is liberation, liberation from our egos. Uh, to me, it's, it's holy. So sacrifice, um, you know, of yourself, putting yourself aside. Tony, you became a volunteer firefighter when you were just 16 years old. How did you know as early as high school that you wanted to make this your career? And was it also in a way a religious calling or something else for you? So I would say, you know, for me, uh, the reason I got into this profession as a volunteer and then uh, as a, a paid personnel was just the fact that um, it, it gave me a, a sense of belonging, right? Um, it was a break away from my home life. Um, uh, I would see the positive, uh, in the fire and EMS department that I grew up around, uh, in the nation's capital. And, uh, the big thing for me was it, it gave me a place to go and belong to something bigger than myself. Um, and coupled with that, you know, my ultimate dream was to, to be a firefighter in a city or an urban environment. And I knew that, uh, the easiest way to start going down that path would be to, to volunteer as a firefighter to get that experience under my belt before I started taking tests and going through hiring processes. So um, for me, it was, you know, a lifelong want or, or need, if you will. And uh, it's something that I, I really aspired to be. And I know most people change their minds a million times as they grow up uh, as to what they want to be when they grow up. Um, but I, I stuck with it and uh, it provided me with a lot of mentors it provided me with a lot of guidance. And uh, to be honest, it, it kept me out of trouble at an early age to make sure that I stayed on a uh, the path I wanted to be on. Hmm. I love that because a lot of kids at the age of five or six all say they want to be firefighters. And, you know, you actually kept that with you till age 16 and throughout your career and were able to make a career of it, which is great. Paul, you've worked in the fire service as a volunteer for more than three decades. Tell us what has kept you volunteering all of these years. I'll tell you what's kept me involved is called brotherhood. Um, you know, we have male and females on our department that keep us close knit and, you know, we get together, we, we have, uh, friendship meetings. I mean, we can literally just sit and visit and the friendships I've gained throughout the United States, meeting other firefighters has just been a blessing. And, you know, my lifelong dream was the same as a couple of, of, of our guests so far. And I wanted to be a volunteer when I was a little boy and I joined the military in the nineties and served in the Gulf war and came back. And, uh, as soon as I was back in town, I decided, Hey, I'm going to join the volunteer fire service, my lifelong dream. And here it, it happened. And I'm serving for my hometown where I was born and raised. And, and I ended up becoming the, the chief at one time. And, 
you know, now that I'm active retired, it, it's fun. And I still take calls as a, as a firefighter here after three decades. So volunteer firefighting in this country actually dates back more than 300 years to the first mutual aid firefighting association in colonial Boston in 1718. I learned researching for this show. In 1736, Benjamin Franklin formed the Union Fire Company, which became the model for volunteer fire companies throughout the colonies. And even George Washington was a volunteer firefighter in pre-revolutionary days. Fast forward three centuries, and most fire departments across the country are still staffed by volunteers. But data released in January from the Census Bureau and AmeriCorps shows that especially after COVID-19, volunteerism through formal organizations such as fire and rescue departments is down. So Paul, tell us, you live in a small town of just 5,000 people in Brush, Colorado. How do you find enough volunteers to respond? Well, it's very difficult. I have to be honest with you. There are times that there's only two or three of us available. And, you know, finding volunteers has uh, become such a difficult task because a lot of these have to drive, the citizens in our community have to drive up to 50 to 100 miles away to have a job. And we just don't have the jobs available in our town like we used to. Uh, Even in the small mom and pop stores, you know, you could work there and respond from the stores. And because of that, it's made it so difficult. And even if you do still work at one of these mom and pop stores, to leave the store after COVID has made it almost impossible. And they can't let you go on the call. So a lot of times, like I said, we're stuck with two or three of us on call at one time here in town. Hmm. Mike, how's the decline in volunteerism affecting your fire department and community in the Hudson Valley in New York? Yeah, I mean, I'll certainly repeat what uh, Paul just said, but our, also our biggest problem is what with chauffeur operators. In other words, the people that drive the big rigs and operate the pumps on them. And we often have times where we'll, we'll have a good crew of interior qualified firefighters who arrive to fight the fire, but no certified driver pump operator to come drive the rig. And, and part of that is because, you know, getting certified to be a pump operator and a driver requires more specialized skill and training. It's harder to get. You then have to get certified on the rig. Uh, by drivers in the department. And as personnel decline, you have, you know, more and more people who are still going through the beginning of the um, of the profession where you're learning to do interior attack and those kinds of things and not yet ready to certify. So we, we do often have times where, we, you know, we'll have a crew and we can't respond because there's no driver. Hmm. All right. We will talk more about that um, after our break. Coming up, we're also going to talk about the threats that climate change and recruitment struggles pose to the future of the volunteer fire service. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. With thousands of options under $20,000, plus customizable financing terms and down payments as low as $0 down, it's easy to find a car that fits your lifestyle. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today. Terms and conditions may apply. Do you wish stories could unfold over three hours rather than three minutes? You tired of doom scrolling? Trying to find humanity? Or maybe a deeper understanding of why the world is the way it is? Listen to Embedded, NPR's original documentary series. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. 
how to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. What happens if your department can't respond to an emergency call? Does it go to another department? Uh, Tony, can you take that question for us? Sure. So, um, you know, whenever there's an issue where, uh, let's say, like in in our case in Washington, D.C., we're a fully career fire department and EMS department here. But what happens is, uh, obviously, as a 911 emergency comes in, uh, the closest resource is sent. And when they're out, the next one would show up uh, as a result. Now, obviously, um, in an area that has a combination department or a volunteer department that has an extended amount of time in between resources, um, then certainly that that adds to the overall response time. And Paul, how has that played out for you in Brush, Colorado? Yeah, so when that occurs here, uh, we're pretty quick about getting on the radio and letting our neighboring departments know that they're needing to help us out. So we'll call for mutual aid right away. And it's actually come to the point where we've actually just started. I mean, we don't even wait. We just call them right away to get the help coming. So just in case we don't have enough uh, members showing up, they can show uh, they can be there within the next 10, 15 minutes. It usually takes for the neighboring departments because they're about 9, 10 miles away from us is the closest one. So... And as you say, you know, this is a volunteer fire department. So it's not only just that these folks aren't being paid, it's that they have a choice whether to show up or not, depending on what their other responsibilities in their lives are, um, whether they can even leave work during the day, for example. So that's also a real concern. I mean, moreover, there's no doubt anymore that global warming is fueling the climate crisis. Just yesterday, new research reported by my colleagues at the Associated Press linked this month's heat waves and record temperatures in the U.S., Europe, and Asia to burning coal, oil, and natural gas. You can find the link to that story on the 1A.org if you want to read more. So as the climate continues to change in response to global warming, so do the jobs of fire and rescue responders. Earlier this month, historic flooding exacerbated by climate change devastated Vermont and other parts of the Northeast. Some areas were hit with two years' worth of rain in just two days. Fire and rescue responders showed up to pump water out of flooded homes and evacuate people to safety. Mike, you responded to that flooding as storms made their way through the Hudson Valley. Tell us about that. We had a busy night, but we were actually very, very lucky. But what I was doing was listening to the radio. um, And and there were towns 20 minutes away where a woman was uh, swept away and killed. So, you know, again, we were on the very, very edge of it. So we we got lucky and it was just a regular busy night. But I I was sort of listening in horror to what, what the other neighboring departments were going through. Paul, in Colorado and across the western U.S., there's been a documented rise in wildfires fueled by climate change. How has that affected your call volume? Yes, so our call volume has uh, increased dramatically, almost 400 percent in some places. Uh, We were taking on an average of about uh, 17 calls, 17, 18 calls annually on wildland fires, and now we're well over almost to 120 calls a year. So and our seasons, we used to have a, a fire season, but now it's just extended itself to all year, just depending on the time of year and how much drought is occurring here in northeastern Colorado. Tony, meteorologists here in Washington, D.C. say that next week could bring us some of the hottest temperatures in seven years. So tell us, how do heat waves and record temperatures affect your ability to train firefighters? 
So yeah, the the heat um, certainly does a toll on anybody's body, uh, especially you know when it's uh, for days at a time. I mean, obviously, um, in the fire and EMS service, uh, we have to wear a certain personal protective equipment. Uh, everything that we carry, either on our body or upstairs or into a building, uh, you know, weighs anywhere from tens to hundreds of pounds. So, the real difficult thing that that we've been dealing with in Washington D.C. Uh, with extended heat waves and things of that nature is uh, the fact that we have to change our hours uh, when we train because we have to get things that are very uh, physically demanding out of the way prior to the the early to mid afternoon. Uh, for example, today, uh, you know, doing live fire training and some of the other in-service training we have to do to keep our members prepared to respond to emergencies uh, means that we had to start at 6 a.m. as opposed to the traditional, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. Mm. Um, and coupled with that, you know, we have to make sure that the members that are on shift in the city are able to provide service for the remainder of their 24-hour shift. So um, obviously we wouldn't want to burn people out uh, and, you know, create those types of, of issues with their body prior to responding to emergencies. So it's it's certainly something we've had to adjust to uh, in the very uh, recent future. And on top of that, um, is your fire force also responding to more cases of heat exhaustion in the community since firefighters also serve as, you know, first medical emergency responders as well? For sure. Uh, you know, we, we have a, a lot of um, those cases happening day to day here. Uh, the city itself uh, responds anywhere from 450 to 700 emergencies for the fire and EMS department a day. Um, a considerable amount of those are for heat-related injuries and uh, other things or other effects from the weather. 400 to 700 in just the city of D.C. per day. That's incredible. So, Mike, are there changes that volunteer fire departments should make to respond to the rapidly changing climate in your view? Uh, okay, so I want to be very clear. I'm not speaking for the fire service or for my department at all. But yes, absolutely. Given that um, that real risk of heat stress and that issue with um, cardiac events, um, I really do think an emphasis on diet, physical fitness, but also on uh, technology to lighten gear, uh, to shrink the size of helmets, to reduce weight, those kinds of things would, uh, would all help. But I also want to be clear that in the training I've received, the fire service is already taking these things incredibly seriously. And I do see a real effort underway to to uh, create these very changes. The only thing uh, that I would, would hope is that these, these changes come uh, quicker rather than slower. Mm. In addition to struggling to recruit new volunteers and adapt to climate change, fire departments are also grappling with an aging volunteer workforce. Data from the National Fire Protection Association says that more than one-third of volunteers in small communities were over the age of 50 in 2020. That's twice as high as in 1987 when only 15.9% of volunteers were older than 50. Here's a message we got from one of you. I've been a volunteer fireman for 53 years. I actually started when I was 13 years old. Why did I do it? Number one, it came from my dad. My dad was a charter member of a company in New Jersey, and I was always born and raised to hear that fire whistle and jump up out of bed to try to help our fellow man. I enjoy it. I think that right now, the fact that the volunteer organizations are dwindling with people who volunteer is because our society has put so much pressure on everyone for dollars and cents. Paul, you retired and then you became an active firefighter again. Tell us about the toll that this work takes on your body as you age. 
well, I can be honest, I know that I've had some, you know, um, pinched nerves in my legs, my knees have kind of worn out a bit, but, you know, I think, like your previous commenter said on the phone, there was, it's it's the willingness, so, to help, and you work through all that, you have to, and, you know, you like you mentioned, I was retired, and I was actually asked to come back on because they just didn't have enough staff. We, I became what's called an active retired firefighter. So, you know, we put more time and effort into it and we continue it. And yes, you're right. I mean, I'm in my 50s and, and still responding in the fire service. So definitely that's a true statement on the age. So how does an aging population of volunteers then affect how fast firefighters can respond to emergencies, Paul? Have you noticed that firsthand? Um, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think, uh, you know, in my community, we're pretty quick and very, uh, you know, when the ones that are available, we're in such a small community that I'm within a minute and a half of driving to my fire station. So that's very beneficial. It just depends if you're one of those employers, employees that work out of town, it would take a lot longer time to respond. Mike, part of this also is about recruiting a whole new group of people, um, you know, younger in age and also more diverse. In fact, the overwhelming majority of firefighters in America are white and they're men. Does the lack of racial and gender diversity affect recruitment of new volunteers? Yeah, again, I mean, I'm again, this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for the fire service or any department, but I certainly think it does. Um, I think that, you know, if, if black people, if women, um, if other minorities don't see themselves represented in the fire service, then they're, you know, they're not going to feel welcomed into it. Um, but that said, I do think that discussions around diversity in the United States are really not productive and hostile and essentialist, and they're not you know, there has to be a balanced approach in which we both reach out and make the fire service accommodating to minorities who are not represented and also honor the overwhelmingly white male and, in my experience, largely conservative backbone of the fire service. What what I think is not going to help is the kind of um, recrimination, accusation, and toxic discourse that has really devastated our relationship with law enforcement. Full disclosure, I, I, I was in law enforcement um, for some time. You know, I think that the the, the real recipe here is compassion and moving away from essentialism um, and, and a big tent. And that's really, really hard to do. And it's not just a national problem, a global problem, but if we're going to solve the problem of diversity in the fire service, it's something we're going to have to tackle. Tony, let me ask you, is your department having similar difficulties recruiting firefighters to work in paid positions um, that volunteer fire departments are experiencing? Or do you think pay and benefits factor into recruitment? You're, of course, in Washington, D.C., where um, there's probably much more diversity in our fire department than in some of these rural areas. Yeah, so the the D.C. Fire and EMS Department is arguably, I would say, uh, one of the most diverse fire and EMS departments in the United States. Um, And it's a fact that, you know, we're very proud of. And to answer the question about the recruitment of um, people, you know, into the paid fire service, uh, it's actually, you know, believe it or not, not maybe as challenging as it is to find volunteers in the community. Uh, But ever since uh, the 2020 and and COVID and the things that happened there, uh, we're certainly struggling to find as many people as we used to. You know, there used to be 4,500 people show up to take a entrance exam, and now it may be a lot less. Mike, you know, one of the things that is 
hampering recruitment um, seems to be, of course, the fact that people need to make money and it's a tough job that demands a lot of hours and not everyone can afford to do that. So although you volunteer without pay, you do advocate for compensating volunteer firefighters. Tell us why. Yeah, so I, I really think that there's a few problems here. And, and one is that the professionalization of the fire service would really give us what we need, which is these, there's such a huge range of skills in firefighting. I think most people don't realize everything from being experts on construction to fire flow to how to fix small engines to, to medical response, you name it. And these skills, they need to be practiced every single day as part of a full-time commitment. And members need to be held accountable for their proficiency in those skills. And I'm the first person to admit, uh, you know, when, when I go to training and I'm learning something and, and I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I forgot that. I should know that. I should have already known that. It should be second nature to me. And then I have to forgive myself because the truth is I'm only doing this on a very part-time basis. So part of it is a matter of pay, but part of it is also a matter of professionalization and a matter of, of regular repet- repetition of skills so that members are truly proficient, not only so that they can do the job, but so they can keep themselves safe. Well, you've received some backlash, Mike, in the community for advocating for pay. What's the argument of those who oppose paying volunteer firefighters? Yeah, so the, the, <laughs> the, the backlash I've received, and this is, this is due to an article I, I wrote on the subject, um, is that that is not selfless. That in asking for pay, that means that your motivation to do fire rescue work is, um, you know, is out for you, out for your personal gain. And, and I certainly appreciate that position, but I, I don't agree. And I, I don't agree because I think <laughs> no one ever got rich being a firefighter. I don't, I don't care if you're an officer on top pay in a big metro area like New York City. You can certainly make more money going to work in tech or banking or, or, or anything else. Um, and I do think, and you heard it both from uh, our other two guests, that the reason people take up this uh, occupation is, is passion, self-sacrifice, and a, and a desire to help others. Hmm. We'll be back after this short break. Stay with us. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without cobalt. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Let's get back to our conversation. One of our listeners, Riley, emails that she spent 20 years as a volunteer firefighter and fought forest fires for the federal government in Florida, Utah, and Idaho. Her husband has even more time than that in the fire service and is still fire chief of their small town fire department. Rural townships like ours with nearly zero industrial tax bases need to enact a fire tax to support services like those we provide. The time fire departments have to spend doing fundraising just to purchase equipment is inordinate, she says. So, Paul, tell me, how would converting volunteer positions to paid ones or offering volunteer firefighters benefits affect your small town? Yeah, it would really give a uh, big impact to our community, especially uh, financially. We'd be strapped because they would have to come up with 
you know, salaries for the firefighters, and that's going to be pulled from the general fund, which would take away from us getting new vehicles and stuff. So a lot of the folks here in Brush understand that, you know, it's a valuable asset for us, and they're willing to pay the taxes currently to keep it as it is, and it's basically free service for them. And again, you know, a lot of them uh, even are like myself or like myself and the members are like, it doesn't matter. We don't want to pay. That's one thing I would definitely stress out there is I joined it because I do not want to pay. I don't care for that. I'd rather just help my community. It's that sense of pride. Hmm. Our listener, Sean, emails, I was an EMT basic, then a paramedic and a paid volunteer firefighter and ultimately an EMS supervisor. The pay was so terrible, it affected the health and well-being of many of the people I worked with. There are people who can't wait for us to arrive and care for them or put out their fire. But on the other hand, you have a system where keeping quality long-term staff is nearly impossible. How do we raise pay to a sustainable wage, he asks. So, Tony, let me ask you, because you've worked as both a paid and unpaid firefighter, this is a vital service. What is the justification for relying on volunteers in smaller communities with smaller tax bases while paid positions stay concentrated in large urban areas? So, and I think it goes back to, you know, what the other two uh, said as well. Um, You know, a lot of this comes down to funding. I mean, everything we've talked about so far uh, during this segment uh, really comes down to funding. Um, and, you know, whether you're paid or not, I, I would like to think that a majority of people are coming in the fire service or the EMS service uh, because of their passion. Um, you know, as far as lower paying career jobs in the fire service or uh, volunteer rank uh, in a smaller rural area in the United States, uh, you know, ultimately, a lot of times, uh, you know, the fire and EMS service doesn't get funded as well as it could be. Um, and sometimes in some jurisdictions, you're funded very well. Uh, and ultimately, you know, a lot of the funding would go to salary in a career or a combination service and uh, elsewhere, right? In the rural communities, uh, like was mentioned, you know, the, the cost of apparatus has doubled and tripled. The cost of equipment has doubled and tripled. Uh, wait times for all of those pieces of equipment or pieces of apparatus has now doubled or tripled since 2020 and in current times. Uh, so there, there's a whole lot of stuff that goes on there, uh, both politically and uh, just on the fact of, you know, how much money can a community afford to give uh, in taxes to provide for uh, their fellow citizen? A study by the Firefighters Association of New York shows that the cost to professionalize the volunteer fire service in that state alone would be around $4.7 billion. With many communities surviving with only a volunteer fire service, what justifies the price tag for professionalizing in your state, Mike? Well, I mean, goodness, uh, I I count that very, very cheap. Um, It's like I said, you know, fire equipment, and again, I will defer to the officers to correct me if I'm wrong here, but the big rig apparatuses, you know, they run anywhere from a half a million to a million dollars, and that's before you start putting the equipment on them, like the saws and the, the hand tools and all of those other kinds of things. You need facilities, and you really need training, Um, and if you're going to incentivize people and hold them accountable, well, I mean, that's a, a, a full career thing, right? So that's benefits, that's educational opportunities, that's medical um, care, it's, it's all, that's sick leave, it's all of these kinds of things. Look, it, it's extremely expensive to fund any kind of profession. And I think it's very easy to look at a $4.7 billion price tag and, and kind of um, 
be shocked by it. Um, but I actually count that very cheap. And I find it frustrating because I, I feel like it says something about our national priorities that we balk at that. I mean, Cardi B can take a pay cut. You know, Elon Musk can sell 10 of his houses for crying out loud. This is a thing that if we really care about and decide as a nation matters to us, I, I do think it's doable. Hmm. Tony, firefighting jobs are becoming increasingly intense and demanding. What do you think should be done to ensure that communities have a well-staffed and reliable fire service? So, you know, you mentioned the demand um, and outside of the the funding aspect of things, uh, you know, the the public obviously deserves the best from us. And that does take a lot of time and it does take a lot of commitment and it takes a lot of training, like was mentioned already. And, uh, you know, the big thing is, is trying to find that fine line uh, between the the minimum standard, which should be as high as, as we can make it or attainable, and getting people um, that are capable and well-trained out there to serve the public. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of that also comes from the retention side of things, right? We talk about recruitment a lot. Uh, the other hard part about this and making sure we're doing the right thing is retaining people uh, and making it so that they want to be there, right? Not forcing people to do this this profession, whether it's volunteer or career, uh, but making it a healthy environment and something that everybody wants to be a part of and that that helps out with the recruitment as well. You know, you make a really good point there, Tony, about retention. And uh, one of our listeners named Paul emails, I approached my local volunteer firefighting station to become a volunteer, but the sign-up and training schedule was too inflexible. You miss one training session a year, and there's no way to make it up, and you're out. They make it too hard to volunteer. Paul, tell us about that. You're on the national board of uh, the you know National Volunteer Firefighting Associations. So tell us what is being done to try to make it easier um, to bring in younger people, more diverse people, and people who can't necessarily make the one time of training per year. Yeah. So, you know, here in Colorado, they're working really diligently to make those hours available to them. And we're offering training. Um, I'm also the president of the Colorado State Firefighters Association, and we're offering grants and scholarships for our volunteer firefighters so they can go out and get that training as needed on their own time. Again, they have to take off time from work from their regular pay job to go train and a lot of them train on the weekends for that fact. Um, but if you miss training, that's that's another opportunity though that we tell them, okay, if you can go make it up at another department, head on out there and do that. We're hosting a training here in August uh, in Brush and we're bringing in an instructor from West Virginia. We're so excited to have him out there. And, and you know, with the National Volunteer Fire Council, if you look at some of their requirements, you can see uh, some of their postings. They have what's makemeafirefighter.org on there and you can actually register yourself and say look I'm available in my community and then they'll send that link straight to the department and say hey this person's available to volunteer for you so I think people need to utilize that and it does have the description and the hours that you need to have so they're pretty upfront I feel about letting you know uh, what's going to be down the road for you as a volunteer firefighter. I want to, you know, touch base with all of you. Um, Paul, what is your vision for the future of the volunteer service? I think our volunteer fire service is going to bounce back. I really do. I think the younger generation is just trying to find time to 
make, you know, they have their kids now with all their sporting events and things, but I think times are going to start changing and getting better for us out here. We have firefighters from Denver that are moving out to these smaller rural areas too, and they're picking up um, shifts with us as well, so that makes it beneficial. So I'm very hopeful, and I do feel like that's a possibility for us, but it's going to take time, and we also have to come up with incentives, like has been mentioned, and Colorado's working on that, trying to help out with tax breaks, for volunteers and even not even going to jury duty, you know, excusing yourself from jury duty and because you've already worked on a fire department. Mm -hmm. Tony, you're on the younger side of our panel. Tell us what you see as the future um, for firefighting. Yeah, I I agree. I think, uh, you know, the fire and EMS service volunteer career, um, it's a noble calling. It's the greatest uh, thing to be a part of. And it's certainly, you know, great for anybody that gets involved with it. Uh, We just have to be creative. Right. Well, people learn differently now. People like different things now. Society's different now. If we're going to be stronger in the future, and I think we will, uh, we're going to have to connect with younger people when they're in high school before they get these big jobs. Right. And and hopefully guide them into what we've all done, volunteer and career um, in the fire and EMS service. Mike, you get the last word. Tell us your thoughts for the future of a sustainable fire service. Uh, the, the, the answer is, I don't know. But if we're going to do it, then we've got to break out of this era of the personal brand and social media ego obsession. And people have to reconnect with the idea of something bigger than themselves. And uh, for me, that's Buddhism. I don't know what it will be for the rest of the country, but that's what's needed. Thanks so much. That's Mike Cole, a fire and rescue responder in New York's Hudson Valley. We also heard Tony Kelleher, Deputy Fire Chief of Training in D.C., and Paula Costa, Second Vice Chair of the National Volunteer Fire Council. Today's producer was Lauren Hamilton. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Indira Lakshmanan from the AP. Thanks for your company. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator of podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to The Indicator from Planet Money and NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Why did Cola Scola write a bonkers, extremely fictionalized play about Mary Todd Lincoln? Well, you know, it was 2020 and we were all so isolated. I, I just started doing research. On, but the truth is, I, no, I just thought of it. We'll talk about that and more on Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.